It's such a good uh, and wonderful day uh, to be alive, and I, I'm just, I, I, I can't begin to tell you how much um, the Lord means to me uh, day after day and year after year, and, and I can just say that, you know, for, for those of you who are here today, those, those of you who know me, you know a little bit of my story, but those who don't know me, um, let me just say that when I accepted Christ as my Savior, you know, I, I say, but the first 23 times I accepted Jesus as my Savior, you know, because I grew up in a Christian home, and there wasn't a lot, it wasn't that, that uh, my parents were so strict that I always felt convicted. It's just that in, in the moment when, when the Holy Spirit was moving, and I was feeling the Lord's presence, and, and He was inviting me to come, I felt I couldn't do it. I just felt I couldn't keep it up. I felt like I was not worthy to be able to be called a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I just felt like that if anyone could like trip over a cord in heaven and unplug God's throne or do something really klutzy, it would be me. And so I, I just never voted myself to be able to receive Christ. So many times I called on the Lord, but the time when it took, I was... 14 years old and now I'm a little more than 14 and I can tell you this that the Lord has been so good to me and so kind and so precious and even in the last couple of years even he's, he's just become such a dear and close friend and it's not like I look forward to seeing him face to face because I would miss all of you so much but I, I gotta tell you that the, the experience that I'm enjoying with Jesus, I'm not sure what it would be like to see him face to face because this is so good. Seeing him face to face would be like not erasing all of my questions. It would just be more him, you know. And, and I pray that before the service is done today that each and every one of us say, I want to start that kind of journey. I want to know Jesus as he really is and I want to worship him because I love him, and uh, I, I just pray that that's the journey that we take here this morning. So three weeks ago, I said, if we look at the gospel story of Jesus, three weeks out, what was happening in Jesus' life? Three weeks out from Passover, when Jesus would be crucified and subsequently resurrected from the dead, three weeks out, Jesus was asking his disciples who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter responded with that resounding conviction and heartfelt cry, Thou art the Christ, which was his way of saying Messiah. As Gentiles, Paul would share with uh, Gentile believers that the way that we say it is Jesus is Lord. So for the Jewish mindset, Peter's got this instantaneous revelation. It's like Jesus has been wonderful. He's been glorious. He's fed multitudes. He's healed so many people. He's changed our lives. But in that moment, three weeks from Jesus' crucifixion, Peter said, I know who you are now. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said out of that revelation, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail which we usually think means that the gates of hell can't, can't uh, stop 
uh, or hold people back. And what it really means is that, that the gates of hell will sometimes be exploited by the church, literally reaching into hell and rescuing someone who is so close to eternity and pulling them out. So the, 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 the hell is not withstanding the church as much as hell is being exploited by the church. And I'm here to remind you this morning something that has become a conviction. We are just talking before the service, even some more of us. And my conviction is that the church is about to enter a time of unprecedented authority. The Lord Jesus is going to trust his bride with unprecedented authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, and to rescue people who have no idea they need rescued. I believe that's the destiny of the church. So things are moving not downward. Not, we're not in a downward spiral. We're in a forward vortex that is pulling us up. And I really want you to catch that this morning because our experience with Jesus Christ as the church begins with the resurrection. It doesn't end with the resurrection. It begins with the resurrection. Hallelujah. Which just makes me want to go like, what's, like, how do you top that? He'll just resurrect us all. That's how, you know. We'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And I'm just going to say it out loud because some year, some pastor's going to say, who knows, this could be the last resurrection Sunday that we celebrate in this fashion. We may be next Easter with the Lord. It's going to happen sometime. So I'm going to just say it. This could be the last Easter that we have together on the earth as we know it. it the next one, we could be with the Lord face to face. I can tell you're overwhelmed by that. That would be um, amazing. That would be absolutely amazing. And it starts with Peter's revelation, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. How many of you know the church also has some challenges? We've had, some, we've had our challenges from time to time, you know. And, um, and, and right away, Peter, the very first thing that happens after that is that Jesus said, from, and the scripture record says, from that moment, Jesus started setting his face like a flint. He was set on a rigid path to get to Jerusalem. He was on a mission to get there, no stopping, no passing go, no collecting $200. He was going to go directly to Jerusalem, even offended one entire city because Jesus wouldn't stop in. But he had stopped in there before. So he set his face like a flint, and he told Peter and the rest of the apostles, he said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. Hey, good news. And then I'll die. And when I'm killed, I'll be dead. I guess that makes sense. And then they'll put me in a grave. And I'll be dead and buried. I'll be dead and buried. I will be killed dead and buried in a grave. And, and the grave will, will hold me. But then there will be on the third day a resurrection. And I can't imagine the disciples, what, you know, what would, I mean, we know that Peter said, God forbid, you know. So right away he gets uh, sort of off uh, track there. But, but uh, you know, the other disciples, what were they thinking? It's like, oh. Whatever, Jesus, you know, like, whatever, you know. Like, you're on to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. They're going to bury you. And then you're going to be resurrected. 
I think sometimes we hear the gospel, we hear the essence of the gospel, and we believe it, but it doesn't register a conviction. There's like this, uh, in old English language, in a cog, in a gear, there's a paw or a dog that has to be set. And when that dog is engaged, or that paw is engaged in the gear, then the two gears turn together. And something has to click inside of our spiritual gears that makes it register. And all of a sudden, we're tracking together and we're saying, praise God, amen, hallelujah. When, they hear, when you hear the phrase, the Lord is risen, you say, he is risen indeed. You know, it's our response. The church's response right now is a little bit slow, a little bit sluggish. God is saying things. He's doing things. And we're trying to track with him, but I feel like that we've not fully engaged. We're a little sluggish. And God wants to fix that this morning. Amen? Your first response, what will your first, my first response, when you hear the testimony of Jesus, what will your first response be? That's where we're headed. So I've called this decision 2021. First decision that had to be made is the disciples had to realize, just as Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter, and, and when Peter said, God forbid, this should never happen to you. What does Jesus say? He said, Peter, you're thinking about the things of men. You're concerned about the things of man or mankind and not the things of God. The first decision that the church has got to make is we are going to be done with emotional or sentimental or even logical. We have got to get synchronized with God so that when he says, this is what I'm going to do, we say, amen, Lord Jesus, go, we're with you. That, that needs to be the heart response. And Peter's response was very emotional. Jesus, I don't want this to happen. In fact, there could be a little bit of uh, hubris there. There could be even a little bit of egotism. There could have even been just a little bit of macho, just a little bit of uh, testosterone saying, Jesus, let me guard you. Let me protect you. I will never let. I'll give my life for you. I'll never let anyone kill you. And Jesus has to turn and rebuke his disciple and say, you don't understand. In the plans of God, in the purposes of God, I must go to Jerusalem. First decision is do we go all in with the things of God or do we go all in with the things of man? God forbid that we be sort of both. All right. Second decision actually happened on Palm Sunday or the time of triumphal entry. They saw Jesus entering on the little colt of the donkey and they spread out the palm branches, they put their coats down, their clothes down and what was that supposed to represent? Jesus was coming in peace. He was not coming like the Romans came. He was not coming like the Greeks before them had come. He's not coming like the Assyrians or the Persians or, or the Babylonians. He was coming in peace <clears throat> and he's entering into Jerusalem. So they welcomed him as a city. But the question is, are you going to accept him? Is the church going to accept him as just a wonderful, really nice guy who's not going to hurt anybody? Or are we going to accept him as the king that is seated on the throne? Seated on a donkey, 
or seated on the throne. That's a decision that has to be made by all of us. Uh, you know, in the story of the triumphal entry, it would have all been good if Jesus just would have been welcomed by the city, but he had the audacity set to say, well, since you've essentially given me the key to the city, then I'm going to go to the temple. He goes to the temple, what does he find? Corruption like you can't imagine. Just going to remind you that the whole temple system in process had become so corrupted that there was not only one high priest, but there were two, father and son. Not only was there so much corruption there that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, began to make a religious leadership that God never ordained, and they became the religious leaders of the day, and they began to lead people not so much in the ways of Moses, but in the ways of a tradition, a religious system that they enshrined or put around um, Moses and the law of Moses. So in the law of Moses, what would happen on Passover is that you as a, as a family, you would raise a lamb or you would select from your flocks and herds a lamb or you would go to a neighbor and barter for a lamb and then you brought it to your house and it was a part of your house and then on that special day, you brought your lamb and the kids all fell in love with it, you know, wife and children all in love with this. The guy's like saying, don't get too attached. We're going to kill it. You know, like who would buy a dog and say, we're going to take him home. Oh, kids, don't get too attached because in a few weeks we're going to kill it as a sacrifice. No, you actually brought this lamb to your household. It was a part of your household. And then you were supposed to take it. And on the day of Passover, you would present it. You would present your lamb, your lamb for your, uh, your family. And it was supposed to repulse you because you would see the, the, the throat of the lamb slit. You would see it bleed out in a few minutes. You would see the life go out of this thing. And you're supposed to stand there and say, oh my God, I wish we didn't have to do this, but it's the only way to expiate our sins. It's the only way to take away our sins. But what had happened in Jesus' day is there was a whole business of raising lambs and selling lambs. And then you couldn't use just the common money. You had to have temple money. So you had to bring your common money and exchange it for temple money. And then with that temple money, then you would buy a lamb, and it's like some lamb. Actually, if we go back and read Malachi, he said, I am done with this. I'm done with the sacrifices. He said, you're offering me lambs that are maimed, they're uh, spotted, they're deformed, they're, they're, they're crippled. And he said, you take them and offer them to your emperor and see if he accepts them. I am not accepting your lambs anymore. But the system was still going. So when Jesus walks in, he's like, okay, you gave me the key to the city. So he goes to the temple and what's he start to do but clean house. He started dealing with corruption right from the business end right on out to what actually came to be was that 
if we took the time to read the testimony and the account was, it was after he cleaned the house out, after he cleaned the temple for the second time in his ministry, after he cleared it all out and railed on those people and showed them like a righteous version of John the Baptist, just absolutely filled with venom and, and anger against what had been a religious practice ordained of God, but had become so corrupt that now their leaders, after seeing Jesus clear this thing out, start plotting together and saying, this guy's got to go. When I ask you a question, the question is, who killed Jesus? That's a question that has been answered wrong so many times. We want to say, okay, it was the Romans. They killed Jesus. Well, they were the vehicle. Okay, we want to say it was the Jews. It was the nation of Israel. That's clearly wrong. The people loved Jesus. In fact, the record says that they plotted to destroy Jesus. That is, the religious leadership plotted to destroy him, but not during Passover, not because they didn't want to infer something, but because they didn't want to incur the wrath of the people. The people loved Jesus. The people were plotting him, applauding him. And, and yes, the religious leaders could get some of them to turn and yell, crucify him. Some of them to yell, give us Barabbas. Yes, that's true. Very, very true. But the most and the majority of the common, ordinary people loved Jesus because he brought them a fresh of breath air from heaven. Real righteousness, real example, real integrity, real love, real honor real true worship heartfelt and then jesus starts aiming for the heart and he's drilling down on the human heart and saying the problem is deeper than the system the problem is the human heart which is why you're offering all these lambs but we're going to take care of that once and for all god himself will provide a lamb so after the deed is done and I hope I've been clear that the, it was the religious leadership that killed Jesus. Some people want to say religion killed Jesus. You could say that, but it was deeper than religion. It was the religious leaders that absolutely were jealous and saw Jesus as an obstacle to the way of life they were used to living, and they didn't want it to change. And Jesus was all about transformation and change. So he had to go. They plot, they kill him, and that's a part of the testimony. Now we're going to look at Matthew 28 and um, just read the uh, testimony. I think it would be good for us to just read the, uh, one more time in our own Bibles, in our, with our own eyes, and um, maybe we can get it put up on the screen here. But um, Matthew 28, verse number 1, a now after, Matthew 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath which would be, that was the Passover Sabbath, right? As it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone and sat upon it. Jim, I'm going to ask you to come back to the keyboard. Could I have just a little bit of music accompaniment here? Because I just think that these scriptures are worth celebrating. 
And behold, thank you, Jim, a severe earthquake had occurred. Isn't that coincidental? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone and sat upon it. Matthew 28, verse number 3 says, And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. I don't know how many of you were headed over to Boscov's or Walmart or someplace and saw an angel sitting on a stone. But if you see one, you better stop and take note. Matthew 28, verse 4, The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. By the way, the temple system had become so corrupt that the temple actually had their own soldiers. Think of it. And they had killed many people before. They came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Jesus said, you have a guard, make it secure. The guards now shook for fear of him. Just an angel, not even Jesus, right? Verse number five, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Verse number 8 says, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran and reported to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's kind of funny, actually. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And his story, this story, has widely spread among the Jews and is even to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can we just pray? Father, I thank you because you have preserved for us a story that re represents the truth and the facts of the matter. Wise men have been reduced to rubble when they came and bowed before you. Strong men, resolute in the rejection of God, having heard the testimony, have been reduced to men of whom no one would fear. For men and women of all ages have heard this testimony and with the testimony felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ of Nazareth not only died to take away the sins of the world, but he raised again to life and ever lives making intercession on behalf of the church and has given her a mandate to go, to teach, to preach, to demonstrate, to share this good news with every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people when she does, the church of Jesus Christ continues to move forward in power, in authority, and victory. So give us ears that hear the testimony with conviction so that the only right response is to worship him and to be done with our doubting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. So today, the question is, will we worship or we will continue in our doubt? I think that men of intellect and women of intellect looking at the testimony of Jesus Christ have a reason to be skeptical and have a reason to be cynical. But I want to show you today from the example of Jesus' own disciples that there's just going to, Jesus is just going to polarize people. Some worshiped, some doubted. Now, before we go too deep into this, I just really want to remind you that these people that Jesus was in front of has to be the 11 disciples. It has to be them. Maybe Mary and Mary... And Mary, you know, maybe those Marys were there. There could have been a couple of other people, but the, the message was, you, my disciples, and Peter, go to Galilee, which is a day's journey away, right? You go there, and I'll meet you there. They're in Jerusalem when this happens, right? So they got to go up country to uh, where this all started, back to Galilee. So before we go any further, I just want to make sure that we're clear that the disciples that we are talking about are the 11 disciples. In fact, in verse number 16, it says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. So we're talking about at least them. There could have been a few others. 
But among the eleven, some worshipped, some doubted. Now before we get to why could someone actually see Jesus resurrected and still doubt, I do want to remind you of Jesus' own words. On one occasion, Jesus taught a parable about a rich man who lived with luxury and then a poor man named Lazarus. Both men died, the rich men in Mark's Matthew 16, I think it is. Um, it is actually Mark 16. In Mark 16, we can read the story of this rich man and Lazarus, who both, both of them died. One of them was being tormented by what? The parable doesn't tell us. They're, the rich man was being tormented. And Lazarus was in the bosom or in the embrace of Abraham. So we infer from that the Jewish thinking of paradise. When Jesus looked at the thief who was crucified beside him, who actually said, today, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what we think of as heaven, for the Jewish mindset, was paradise at that time. And apparently there was a separation. There was Abraham's bosom or embrace, and then there was another place, usually thought of as the grave, Sheol, sometimes Hades, Gehenna, fire, torment. I just want to remind you that hell is not the corporate headquarters of the devil. He doesn't rule from hell. It's his destination. It was created for him and his minions. And people who bind themselves to him end up suffering the same fate. This rich man begged that God would have Abraham send Lazarus over with just a little bit of water to just cool his tongue. And um, it was told him that was not possible. There was a gulf fixed between the two of them. There couldn't be going from one side to the other. And so in that moment, the rich man realizes that he has brothers who are still living and the way they're living their lives show that they don't fear God, they don't love God, and therefore he's afraid that they will have the same fate that he's having. So he said, would you just send me back so that I could warn my brothers? Nice try. And Jesus, in the parable, he says that even if someone were to rise from the dead and go back and give testimony, that doesn't mean that those brothers will change their life. I want to use that as a springboard to just say, is it possible for disciples to have what we all would just long for? It's just one glimpse of Jesus resurrected to settle it all. I can just say that I was in what many people feel is his tomb or was his tomb which by the way he borrowed it didn't really need it long just sort of a short-term thing so he just borrowed this tomb I've been in it and can I tell you is that a sacred place I, I think it's as sacred as any place on earth 
Because wherever two or three gather in Jesus' name, he said, I'm there with you. So did I sense God's presence there? Yes, I did. I sense God's presence right here, right now, too. In a very powerful way, very profound way. Very honored to be standing in front of you and sharing this testimony. But I, 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 I just have to say that most of us, if we just had that option of like, okay, w would you like to go on a nice cruise, all expenses paid, or would you like to get a glimpse of Jesus with your eyeballs and actually see him resurrected? Most of us would say, I would like to have that thing of seeing Jesus, you know, like just, just for a minute, like, like I believe, but sometimes I have concerns, you know. And then I'll be reading the Bible and my faith will come up. I'll be with people and we'll worship together. My faith will rise up and then I'll go into Monday and then things happen. All of a sudden, I start to kind of waver a little bit and I'll just kind of wonder if, am I the only one who fluctuates from time to time? Or do you sometimes have doubts yourself? I just wonder, for those of you who are visiting us online, have you ever had a moment or a time when you believed in Jesus, but you still had your doubts. Do you think that a resurrection of Jesus would have cured it for you? Apparently, it didn't for his disciples. Now, someone could raise their hand and say, well, they're not born again yet. Give them a chance, you know, to grow in this thing. Jesus had not yet breathed on them, and they had not been truly born of the Spirit. I have wondered something even more profound in my own heart and life, and I shared it with some of you before, but I have asked the Lord this question. I don't mind asking him questions because I've got a lot of them, you know. And sometimes he answers me, sometimes he doesn't. A lot, a lot of times he does. Usually when he answers me, he answers me through the scriptures or, or that still small voice that he speaks into my heart. But on one occasion, I remember saying, Jesus, I got to understand something. Like, if I had been there on the day of the triumphal entry, which, by the way, it's really good when you're reading the gospel accounts to put yourself in the story, to experience it for yourself. It's a great way to be encouraged and to receive life-giving strength from it. So I see this crowd, I see people cheering Jesus, and, and, I, and I see people waving their palm branches and laying down their shirts and stuff. Would I have been one of the people who would have yelled, Hosanna, Lord, save us, we need you, I love you? Or would I be one of the crowds that says, crucify him? You know, which one would I be? And, and it, it really concerned me in a particular time when I was examining my heart, and I was very honest with God, with myself. And I was asking for another time, and when I asked it again, God answered me this way. If you love my son today, you would have loved him then. If you reject my son today, you would have rejected him. So I said, okay, Lord, I'm just going to go with that one. Like, I love him. I accept him. And I felt the spirit smile and say, yeah, you wouldn't have creeped. You wouldn't have yelled crucify him. You would have accepted him then. 
because you are you. All your life experiences would be different in first century. I get that. But they could have been worse, not better. So I'm going to just take that thought. If I would have accepted him then, then I... If I accept him now, then I may have accepted him then. If I reject him now, I might reject him then. I'm going to take that and apply it to the testimony about Jesus and say, if I worshipped him today, I might worship him then. I might have worshipped him then. If I doubted today, I might have doubted him then. But I, I, I just want to kind of lay that out there and say, okay, where are we at in this thing? What... What is my first response when bad news, when horrible things happen and overtakes me? Is my first reaction worship or here we go again, doubt? I believe that we live in a country that is wrestling with that very issue right now. Our Judeo-Christian values and ethics are being questioned. I won't say like never before, but in my lifetime, like never before. We as a people need to decide, will we worship him or will we continue in our doubt and our unbelief? So in that sense, today is the day for that gear to click into place and for us to actually say, I have a conviction and that Jesus is Lord, and therefore I will worship him when I understand, when I don't understand, when things are going well, when things are not going well, when everything is as I hoped they would be, and when they are not as I had hoped they were to be. Is that fair? Can we just start from that premise? And let's just look at some possible reasons why some people may have doubted on that day. Why had some of his disciples doubted. Well, in, in Mark chapter 16, verse number 10, if we took the time to read that, we would see that some of the disciples rejected the women's testimony. So I'll say it this way. In, in their culture, that a, a woman's testimony was not considered reliable. And isn't it wonderful for Jesus to elevate women and to say the first people who are going to see him alive are women. And they're going to go back and they're going to tell the guys, we've just seen Jesus. And I want you to note that the women's first response was to grab his ankles and worship him. Let me just tell you, that's the best thing I could think of to do. It's like, it's Jesus. Instead of saying, oh my God, Jesus would say, yes. You know, I mean, you know, instead of just like, I can't, you know, the best thing is just grab his feet. Just fall on your face, grab his feet, and say, I love you. And that's what the women did. They came back, and they told Peter and the other guys, and some of those guys refused to believe their testimony because they were women. I'm going to tell you that some of us have doubts. Some of us, even who are would-be disciples and followers of Jesus, struggle because of our biases and our prejudices. Uh, uh, what we th so, in other words, I look at someone and with my mind, I evaluate, 
Is that person an accurate testimony or not? Is that person telling me the truth or not? Let me just say it this way. When someone says, uh, Pastor Rich, uh, it's just a wonderful thing. Jesus healed my daughter of X, Y, and Z. Is my first response to say, praise God, hallelujah. That's just who he is. Or is it like, I'm not so sure, you know. I'm like, I know you, I have history with you. And you can just be sort of a charismaniac, you know. And you're like all in no matter what. If a little feather falls from the ceiling, you're ready to have a revival. If you stub your toe, you're ready to fall on your face and repent and grovel before God and ask him to love you again. Okay, so I are one. I know that as a matter of fact i want to just say it this way some people refuse to accept the testimony of jesus christ when we give it because they look at us and they say you're not very reliable with the educated cool you're not one of my group and you know like if you weren't such a if you didn't have such a southern drawl, I think I might believe you. Is that true or not? <clears throat> okay, so we do that to ourselves sometimes. But Jesus, at one point, will rebuke his disciples when they do believe him. And he rebukes them and says, you know, you have seen, Thomas, you have seen, now you have evidence, you have seen, but blessed are they who have not seen, and yet they still believe. And then he says to the people who are probably gathered in that, um, that dining room where they were eating together, he says to them that you have got to learn how to accept the testimony of another person. Now, I think that discernment qualifies. I think we should have discernment. I really do. But I think that our first response ought to be not who's telling me the testimony, but what is the testimony. Don't say, I look at you and I evaluate whether you are true or not. I evaluate whether this is truth or not. And I want to just say this to our skeptical friends who are still unbelieving, who have not yet accepted Christ as your Savior. If you're an honest skeptic, we love you. If you're, a, uh, if you're an unhonest, a dishonest skeptic, you just don't want to change, I just want to say to both of you, please, you must hear our testimony. Our testimony isn't that we are wonderful and you should believe us. Our testimony is that he is wonderful and you ought to believe him in spite of who we are. <clears throat> in spite of us being a hick, in spite, of, in spite of us being a hayseed, in spite of us not being very educated, in spite of us being uh, not altogether reliable, in spite of us having our ups and our downs, you should hear the testimony of Jesus because it's not us that are wonderful. It is him. It is he that is wonderful. <laughs> hear the testimony of Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him in spite of us. And I just want to help someone today who you've blown your testimony. You feel like, I'm never going to testify again because I've blown it so badly. You know what? One of the best things to do is just admit it. 
The world wants us just to admit it, just say, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. I was such a bad example as a Christian. But please don't judge Jesus based on me. In fact, that's the point. I needed a Savior, and I still need him. Some refused to trust in someone else's testimony, and especially if it was a people group that they had a bias against. Some, in Mark 16, verse 14, Jesus said, your hearts are hard and you are slow to believe. Now, if I was with Jesus for three and a half years, and according to John's account of the gospel, everything he did was really to build faith in those 12 men. If, if you take those 12 men who had walked with Jesus day in and day out and saw him in all kinds of situations and all kinds of uh, meetings and events, heard him, loved him, talked to him, ate with him, fellowship with him. They saw him at his best. They saw him at his worst. And even at his worst, he was better than any of them. How could they still have a hard heart and be unbelieving? Let me just say the Spirit of God is asking the church that very question right now. Why could you believe and yet not believe? Why are you so hard-hearted? I'm hoping it's because we're grieving. Thomas was grieving. He was grieving. He loved Jesus. On one occasion, he said, let's go with him to Jerusalem that we may die with him. And Thomas, when he heard the testimony that Jesus was risen, he said in an undeniable fashion, he said, unless I can put my fingers in the holes on his hands and thrust my hand in the side where the spear opened him up. I will not believe. I'm so thankful for Thomas. He helps me. He gives me such hope because he was a man grieving. He loved Jesus and he stood there and he saw them put those holes in his hands. He saw them put that spear in his side. He knows where these Romans' execution goes. No one comes out alive. Jesus was dead. Don't mess with me. If Jesus is alive, then I should be able to touch him. I should be able to feel him. I should be able to know him because I love that man. And don't you mess with my grief right now because I love Jesus. I'm so grateful that when Jesus and Thomas met in that room in Galilee, that when Jesus appeared among them again, because the first time he appeared to them, Thomas wasn't there. And he appears among them again in Galilee. And this time, Thomas is there. And Jesus says, hey, Thomas, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones you can clearly see that I have. Come here, put your hands, put your finger in the hole in my hand, put your hand up here in my side. And Thomas just fell before him, grabbed his feet, and he said, my Lord and my God. He had a conviction. History would tell us that Thomas is probably the, the apostle who went on to plant the church in Rome. 
But on that day, he was, for once and for all, he was the, the gear and the cog, the paw, the dog meshed with the gears and, and he had a conviction and now he is tracking and, and he's one of the men who died for Jesus as a martyr. Jesus also rebuked some of them because they didn't trust the prophets. He said, how could you, how could you possibly not get that the scriptures in the law and in the prophets foretold that this must happen to me. How could you not believe the scriptures? And I'm here to tell you there's a way to read the scriptures and you believe it and you believe it's truth and you'll be willing to die for it and yet you don't believe it. Not like you would actually step out of the boat onto the water, believe it. Not like you would actually die for him, believe it. But because you absolutely are just not certain that you could even trust the scriptures. Which I want to just tell you, not only has Christianity had 2,000 years to produce a body, to produce a, a, a different narrative or other witnesses, it's had more than 2,000 years to disprove the Bible. And every time they find a new scroll or a new book, it just further confirms that the book that you have in front of you, that you barely open, that you barely care about, that you barely care or, or carry anymore, that that book is true. And if you believe it, you'll believe him. By the way, just, just so we're clear on this one, um, I think that it's really good that if you have just a skepticism about the Bible in general, and I understand why people are skeptical in some of the apparent contradictions, but if you do serious research, you'll find out that no one has ever disproved the Bible. And I want to also say, let's just start here. If you're having serious doubts about it, all I want to do is point to the land of Israel. Hello. The Bible tells you where she came from. The Bible tells you how she was formed. The Bible tells you what her future will be. Hello. Wonder why Israel is so hated in the world today. They're a living testimony to the authority of the scriptures. Hallelujah. Okay. Now here's a possible solution. In Luke 24, 41, it says that, 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 that they had a difficult time believing him because they were over, overjoyed. In other words, this is like, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. They just actually looked at the situation and they said this is this is hilarious like i must be dreaming i know he's standing there i know he was crucified i know he's buried uh, uh, and now he's standing in front of me. i know he's eating a fish i know but uh, I, I, something's gone wrong in my synapses something's gone wrong in my head 
because I know that if it's too good to be true, it's not true. That's the cynicism I grew up with. That's the cynicism that we, uh, we uh, inherit when we live our lives. Haven't we all been promised something? To, it was supposed to be so good and so wonderful. And when you found out the truth about it, it wasn't that great. It wasn't that wonderful. Like the pleasures of sin actually isn't as wonderful as it advertises. You become cynical. We become cynical because we hear good things. We hear bad things. We just hear so much stuff. And I'm going to just tell you that I, I suffer from cynicism because, and, it, and, and that is a real enemy to faith. So I'm like at a place right now where like, even if I see it with my eyes, I don't know if I really believe it. Even if I hear it with my ears, I don't know if I fully believe it. There's just so much nonsense and so much mess, so much reported, so many things, so many ideas, so many conspiracies, so many theories, so many ideas, so many things coming at the church and coming at the world from all different directions, you know, and I'm talking about just inside the church, not outside the church, you know, but there's so many things coming at us from so many different directions. After a while, I just become cynical and say, you know what, I I don't know that I believe anyone anything and all of these things can have an effect on us where we find ourselves somehow some way hard-hearted doubting with unbelief is it possible to have Jesus resurrected in front of you and some worship and some doubt I'm going to say, hello, I've done it. I've had occasions where I was absolutely convinced that Jesus could never let anything happen that would shake my faith again. And yet something happens and my faith gets shaken again. I guess the better question would be to ask, why did some of them worship him? Why did some of them worship him? Why was some, some of them, with all that stuff, why did someone just fall, why did some of them just fall down, grab his ankles, and worship him? Well, again, I'm going to say that most of us appreciate Jesus for what he's done. We believe in Jesus for who he is. But I think the thing that's missing a lot of times is that there's a place where we can actually love him, I mean, believe in him and not fully love him. And that's the journey that I've been on.